Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists, and so many more people, honestly, (laughs) to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them, and to learn a little bit more about how they're involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. I love this episode, by the way. just want to start there. I know. I really love this episode too, because I, so I was actually really excited to, to, to talk to our guest today, but, um, but it even was better than I was anticipating it was going to be. Uh, it was just, it was, it, I, I think I said touching at the end, it was heartwarming. Like it was like soul fulfilling, right? Like, yeah. It was fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I feel um, there's just so many kind of, I mean, we always ask people like for words of wisdom at the end. And I feel like this entire episode, not that others aren't, but this whole episode is um, challenged me to think in ways that are different than what I, I think that I typically approach the world or approach the ideas of civic and political engagement. So it was really, it was really rewarding in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, that there's, maybe a, a shared ethos, but a, definitely a different kind of way of looking at it, right? So, I mean, you had kind of talked about some themes that came out of uh, the episode, right? Talking about dreaming, about how, like, acknowledging someone's dream, that maybe that dream at the end doesn't even, like, come to full fruition, but the power of acknowledging that someone's dream is meaningful and worth pursuing, that there's something very uh, inherently powerful about that. I love that. And I and I loved how our guest really tied it into kind of this idea of accompaniment and solidarity too, right? So if you're if you are um alongside someone and you are in solidarity with it with them, then you know, then understanding and believing in their dream is a powerful act. And I think it's just a really an amazing way of kind of, I don't know, reframing or kind of even maybe redefining the way that we are in community with one another, which I think is fundamentally what we you know, set out to do when we did the Growing Democracy Project, which is to think about how are we in community with one another. We t- came to it, probably because of me, from the framework of civic and political engagement. But I think um, today's guest really challenges us to think about it more from a position of, of, of a liberation and and I don't know, solidarity work. And, and I think it was really powerful. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and foundationally, uh, you know, we've never said that, that that's what we're pursuing and that's what we're interested in. Uh, but that, I definitely, that resonated with me a lot, right. Is this mm-hmm. idea of, of liberation that that is in fact, right. Our ultimate goal is that, um, is that that's what we're interested in pursuing is, is liberation for all of those uh, in our neighborhood, in our community, uh, in our state, in our world. Uh, mm-hmm. And this guest today really spoke about 
about that. Um, and then, and then the final theme of course, uh, which is having grace, um, and not just grace for others, right. But that you start with grace for yourself. Mm-hmm. This work is hard and give yourself grace. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I and I love it. So so without further ado, I'll, I will introduce our our esteemed guest, Bryson Davis. So Bryson Davis is a husband, father, pastor, CEO, instructor, learner. He wears many hats that have afforded him rich experiences in some of the most challenging and beautiful places around the world, from his own upbringing and poverty to winning college championships. Bryson hopes his story will encourage and inspire others to embody stories of solidarity, liberation, and grace. So great to have you with us. So joining us today is Bryson Davis, and Bryson Davis is the CEO of Akron Leadership Foundation. Bryson, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And I know we just read your bio, but I think, you know, when you talk to people about, when they tell their story, right, of who they are and how they got to where they were, it's always such a more interesting, um, I think, story and narrative and pathway than a, a bio that we just read on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually from Los Angeles. Um, I've been in Northeast Ohio for uh, a long time now, so I call both home, but I'm originally from Los Angeles, born in Hollywood Hospital in LA. And uh, I was uh, raised for an early part of my life in the infamous uh, part of LA called Compton. So I like to joke with people and say I'm straight out of Compton, just like the, uh, <laughs> the movies and NWA and all that stuff. So um, that's really where I'm from. And, and and just like everyone who's probably listening to this podcast, like where you're from is a part of your story. Like it, in many ways, it's uh, very uh, formational and, uh, and and even so can uh, determine the trajectory of your of your life in some in some form or fashion. So that is part of my lineage, and um, I'm proud to say that that's where I'm from. But now I live in Northeast Ohio in Akron, specifically the home of LeBron James, if you've ever heard of him. And uh, <laughs> and I love my city. I love the work that I do. Uh, my wife, my daughter. We have another one on the way, and we're excited about yeah, that in September. And um, yeah, that's uh, so. Yeah, my 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 uh, origin stories has a lot to do with like my story what i how i live and, and how i work uh, and the things that i do now no, so now i'm from phoenix and uh, ashley knows i love talking to people that are from the west coast uh, because obviously it's a much different <laughs> uh, environment than being in ohio so what was it that brought you to ohio yeah, it's a good question. A lot of people ask that. So, but I was young, so I didn't really, you know, I didn't choose to do that. I moved to Ohio in about sixth grade, um, and it was it was because of tragedy in my life. So, so I didn't really choose to do it. I was adopted by my aunt uh, at the age of ten, eleven, and uh, that's how I wound up here in Akron. But my family is originally from Akron, so my mom was just kind of like a, just like I'm getting out of Akron, and she moved to to LA, and, and so that's where I was born and lived the early part of my life. And then uh, after a tragedy, we I ended up back here in, in Akron. 
So you've been here a long time. Yes. I'm, I'm a much more recent transplant to Ohio. I've only been in Ohio for about five years, <laughs> ah. but not from the West coast. Sorry. I see you're wearing a Kenmore shirt though. Is that a Kenmore oh. Akron? Uh, Kenmore Shaker Heights. <laughs> oh yeah. Not the same. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to pivot on that awkward note. <laughs> So you're the CEO of Akron Leadership Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Like, what do you all do? And, and, and maybe even more specifically, like, what do you do as CEO? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, you know, CEO and the professional, like you can Google any like kind of job description for that. I do, I do that stuff. Like, share the mission, the vision of the leadership, Akron Leadership Foundation and uh, specifically with funders and trying to raise money and doing all that kind of that stuff, leading the organization, leading the people in the organization. But for me, it's, it's more so kind of embodying the ethos of who we are, uh, both within our own organization as well as uh, in the communities that we want to come alongside. And so what we do as the Akron Leadership Foundation is essentially like leadership and economic development. We try to marry those two things together because oftentimes we feel like those things, specifically within the uh, kind of community development, like uh, grassroots, nonprofit level, uh, those two things are often separated. Generally, an organization will take on a, and this again, is there's, this is not bad mouthing, it's just kind of a, an assessment. Generally, organizations will take on a, like a service industry motif where we do handouts and that kind of stuff. And what we try to do is marry like empowerment and solidarity with coming alongside and uh, doing service as well. So, so we do leadership and economic development. We come alongside leaders um, who we think uh, are the most proximate to the pain and opportunities of our communities. Um, and we see them as because of their own stories and their own experiences with the issues in our communities, we see them as the ones who are actually most uh, equipped to address those. So not us PhD smart heads or, you know, the city officials, nothing against all those folk, but like the people who've actually been struggling with addiction, the people who've been struggling with homelessness, the people who've been struggling with, you know, not having enough income to feed their family or pay their bills or whatever the case may be. And so that's, those are the diamonds that we try to uh, identify and come alongside and, and build and share capacity with them for the flourishing of our city. Have you always been involved in community development? And I, and I guess, how does that tie into, how does one become right a CEO of a community organization? Yeah, uh, well, I like to deflate a little bit our CEO term, like in our organization. Like we might sound good, we and we do some good work, and and uh, I don't want to be like fake humble, but uh, we're we're grassroots. So when you picture the Akron Leadership Foundation, do not picture like a university or anything that's like really big. <laughs> we are grassroots through and through, and CEO is a term that uh, we chose intentionally. So Leadership Foundations, real quick, is actually an international organization, and we are a chapter of them. And so that means we kind of represent what they call the wheel of change, uh, which is coming alongside leaders, equipping leaders, and facilitating joint initiatives. Uh, and if you do those three things, you can manifest them however you would like within your specific context. 
and be a part of this larger organization. So that's what we do here in Akron and across Northeast Ohio region. But we really intentionally, we're intentionally small and we intentionally want to work with grassroots leaders. Um, I became a CEO because I, like, I'm the grassroots leader who we want to come alongside and work with, you know, as a person of color with my own origin story and if you like quote unquote disadvantaged or, origin story and therefore lacking as a, as a black man, lacking like the social and financial capital to like see many of the dreams that I have for my life and more so for my neighbors and my communities, uh, lacking like on ramps to like really manifest those things. And so I've been doing that kind of, I've been that kind of leader hustling to try to get that kind of work done for over 10 years. And then I was just privileged to come alongside uh, the right people to be able to like launch an organization that would help other folk like me do that work. That's awesome. So from an organizational perspective, the Akron Leadership Foundation has a variety of different initiatives, right? From from the Dream Lab to cooperative farms to reentry programs. So how do you see those programs fitting together? Or like, what is the thread kind of that connects all of the initiatives that y'all are working on? Yeah, great question. I guess leaders. Again, the story of the Akron Leadership Foundation is like my story. And so, and for those who have religious trauma, bear with me for a second, but there's there's kind of like the one of the foundational tenets of our organization. We're not faith-based, but we're faith-inspired. Um, and one of those tenets is uh, the, the parable of the lost sheep, which is this idea where Jesus tells, us, tells a story to his people and he's like, you know, which one of you, if you lost one of your 100 sheep, wouldn't like move heaven and earth to go find that one sheep, right? And like, that's like the motivation and inspiration for our organization. So leaders, like, but not the 99 leaders. Like we live in a culture that's really risk averse, right? So like, that's the industry, like that's the banking industry, that's that's getting into college industry, like that's every industry. Like we're not going to necessarily, we're not going to choose to take a risk on someone, but like our inspiration is like, uh, it's pretty risky to leave the 99 sheep people, leaders you've been invested in, who are the most likely to succeed, to go chase the one who's goofing off somewhere behind a tree or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where is john why is john over there <laughs> like let's go find him and risk everything else for that one that's our inspiration so leaders and particularly those who are marginalized and that's that's the one is like they're probably not just wandering behind this the tree or whatever because they're goofy like there's probably been systems put in place that have like caged that sheep in behind that tree and most of the world's looking at them like whoa why are you why are you like taking a nap over there uh but we see the world a little bit differently it's like it's probably not taking a nap it's probably been like stuck there by institutions and systems of oppression so right right barriers to entry uh, so i was really intrigued by the dream lab that you guys have at akron leadership foundation and just hearing you talk about that right so akron leadership foundation is one of of, of many so it sounds like there are many leadership foundations and that they all kind of uh situate themselves in a specific context so what is it about akron leadership foundation that is kind of uniquely tailored to akron and how i guess what what makes it so distinct what is it that um the context of akron necessitates uh, kind of uh, filling gaps if you will yeah 
That's a great question. I, I, I think uh, the best way to answer that is Akron has a lot of good people doing really good things. And we certainly, uh, we don't need to kind of like pat ourselves on the, our, on the back and say like, we're, we're the only one doing this, um, uh, or take away from the good work that's been happening. We're genuinely collaborative and we don't necessarily even advertise. I don't know how you guys heard about me, but, uh, we, we, uh, we really just try to like be as grassroots as possible. And because of our position, like, in the community because of like the like pastoral and community development work that I've been doing for the last 10 plus years and the people that I work with have been doing for the last 30 years. Uh, it's our relational like capital and our relational context that gives us a unique avenue to like carry this work out. You know, there's uh, we don't have to like call people to say, Hey, like, do you know any like black people who want to start a business no, like that's our neighbor like yeah what do you mean you know i don't have to call him i would just like just that's that's my boy like i i know him so so i think that's kind of what makes us unique is that we've you know we didn't start something and then go seeking the work like we were already doing the work and so we tried to start something to be a facility a, a facilitator of that work to a greater capacity if that makes sense yeah it, it does and i i wonder if if there isn't some mistrust of uh, for folks that are, you know, community members in Akron of organizations that, uh, you know, might say, "Hey, we're here to help," or "We're we're here to, you know, uh, you know, do something for you." Is there a level of distrust of community members? And if so, how do you kind of uh, get over that hurdle? Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. There, of course, there's a level of distrust. So there's organizations that do something similar to what we do. So two of our programs, two of our like main like DNA strands, one is the the Dream Lab that you mentioned. The other one is the KLA program, which does leadership development. And there's there's like these equivalents, uh, quote unquote, of these sort of programming um, in our city. But because there is a mistrust in the in the population, the particular population that they serve is different than ours. That's really what sets us apart. And in a sense, one of the ways to do community work that's not colonizing is to do it through solidarity. And not many organizations have that position. And uh, no matter how hard you try, like it's probably going to be colonizing work if if you're like if it's not your community, and that's not necessarily all the way bad, you know. Like sometimes you just have to do stuff, and there's a cost to whatever work you're going to do. There's there's always a cost to it, and hopefully you can minimize those costs. But at the same time, like that's that is kind of what um, the kind of work that we do, and we do it in a way that is through solidarity and, and doing work with and coming alongside our community as much, as much as we can. So I want to ask real quick, cause we've talked about the dream lab and I, I think I was probably the one that mentioned it initially, but like, could you describe the dream lab for us and for our listeners in particular? Cause I just, while we were sitting here, pulled it up on my web, on the web again to kind of read more about it. And it's just so intriguing the work that y'all are doing with it, but I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to, 
to get a sense of what it is from your perspective. Sure. So the Dream Lab is, so there's like a actual space that we call the Dream Lab. That's like the inception of the idea um, was this kind of, uh, yeah, this, this embodiment of my own life experience, which was like, I, so I took, I took this summer several years ago and I went to California back to my home state uh, to just learn more about cities and to learn more about like how to serve cities well. And uh, I came back with this like idea, this dream. And so I called like every nonprofit in Ohio or well, Northeast Ohio. And I sent emails and of the few that did respond, they were all like, you know, God bless you, whatever. Go, you know, good luck. Uh, but then there was one in particular that said, yeah, meet me at this, this place at this time. And then they were like, yeah, man, we're all about you and we're all about your dream. And like, that was like the wow. beginning of my journey of them saying, they didn't really even care what the dream was. It was, it never even happened. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't even that great of an, of an idea necessarily, um, but it was, it served a great purpose, right? Sometimes our ideas themselves don't accomplish that much or turn into Google or, or Apple or whatever, but like the dream still ser serves a purpose, even if it doesn't manifest itself. And they knew that and they were able to say like, yeah, man, like we're, for you we're with you we're on your side and we believe in you and your work so the dream lab is like the embodiment of this experience of saying like how many people out there have dreams uh who've been living these the living in or alongside the challenges that most nonprofit organizations exist to serve who have a dream who've been selling cupcakes out of their basement for 15 years or whatever the case may be like, but don't have the resources or capacity to really kind of see those dreams come to fruition. Like, what if we took a risk on those basement cupcake makers <laughs> and say, like, that's, uh, we believe in you and we believe in your dream. And, uh, and, uh, we'll, 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 uh, we'll take a risk on that and a risk on you because you're worth it. And there's something existential that happens when, uh, you tell someone they're worth it, whether or not they're, cupcake business turns into a brick and mortar something greater is accomplished there so, so that's really the, the the ethos of the dream lab and kind of our our flagship dream lab program has been our Akron cooperative farms project uh which is now a which is which was about five acres of unused baseball fields that got turned into an urban farm by a leader who'd been in the uh, immigrant and refugee community for several years and being in solidarity with that community inspired him to want to serve that community by turning that land and transforming it into urban farms, which is what that particular population loves to do. Like that's home for them. And so now we have five acres of urban farm that over 120 families garden at, and that gardening is therapeutic and healing. And it also allows them to turn their produce into profit so it's it's leadership development, it's economic development, it's all those things kind of married together for the good of not just that population, but this, the the communities and the city at large. It's really a beautiful thing. So we've had some some past guests on um, talking about social entrepreneurship, social enterprises, thinking about kind of that that idea, right, of kind of 
bringing together leadership development and economic development for individuals and communities through through small businesses with social impact, right? So where do you see for-profit organizations in the overall goal of improving the lives of vulnerable populations in Akron? From, from either your individual perspective or your perspective as kind of the, the CEO of this organization kind of trying to do some of this work? So we, we call, uh, we, we shifted the language a little bit to impact enterprise. So social enterprise is kind of like the, the, the token language uh, in a good way. Like it's just the language that what it's been. We've, which means, you know, you're going to create an enterprise to address a social problem. We've, I think impact enterprise, we've adopted that language because it's a little bit broader, which I think is important, right? So impact enterprise, you may not be starting a, an enterprise that's for profit to directly address a social problem, but you're doing it and you're in, you're doing it in a way that has certain principles and philosophies that are going to do good. Like it's the economy, it's the economics, right? Like you can do good without directly addressing homelessness, you know what I'm saying? So this idea that like I'm gonna I might start that cupcake business and I might not necessarily even employ ex-offenders, but like I'm gonna pay my people living wages. I'm going to have them I'm they're gonna work healthy hours, they're gonna get plenty of time off and and leave. Uh and we're gonna give we're gonna even give five percent of our profits to blah 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 blah. But even if we didn't, like because I'm doing my business in this way, it's it's making a positive impact on my community. And on the people that uh, that call this place home, so I think that the, the answer to your question is partly in there. <laughs> like, doing good business uh, should be a blessing to those who are a part of your business. It should be a blessing to those who uh, patron your business. Right, the, your patrons like they should get a reward from from whatever your product is that you're selling. And if you think even bigger than that, and like there's some ways that like either directly through just like economic uh, economic processes that like your community directly should benefit from your can benefit from your business, yeah, either through like economics or by saying I'm going to give like five percent, ten percent, however much of my profits to these social challenges. Um, and I think lastly, the reason we believe in that is because it it's a great way to give power back to those who've been, you know, historically, um, yeah, whatever you want to call it, disenfranchised or, um, left out, um, whatever you want, whatever language you want to use. And so if we can use that as a platform and as a mechanism to say like, here's your own story, take it by like your hands and you, you write it, here's the pencil, write your story instead of like historically what it's been is like everyone else is writing the story for you. Um, this is a way to kind of give people the, the power back and maybe 200 years change like some of the wealth imbalances in our country. So I, I love the reframing of impact entrepreneurs is the language that you were talking about. Is this, and I just, and this is more a curiosity for me. Are you having these conversations with these individuals, these artists and impact entrepreneurs in the the dream lab um, and kind of, or to, you know, facilitating the idea that this is the type of organization that could exist or are people coming to you because they're already deeply passionate about it and they found you as a space that kind of helps to foster um, that interest? Oh, so people generally find us and 
and they come with their dream. So they're like, I just want to do this. And I heard, I heard y'all help. I was like, yeah, we do. Uh, and, and then maybe some of the, the, the deeper, like kind of tenets of impact enterprise and that stuff happens organically through the relationship that's built. But yeah, we don't like do workshops uh, for instance. And then, you know, people come and then they're like, Oh yeah, this is great. Let's do it. Uh, it's more kind of organic if that makes sense. Yeah. Not that we're opposed to, to that uh, <laughs> other option. And, and in some ways we've been open to even talking more about it and really for the purpose of broadening the imagination of funders. So it's almost like, like a lot of times when you have, for instance, like these like racial equity, diversity, DEI conversations, and you talk about these things. And so for some people like the light bulbs are going off and you're talking about organizational change and like, or you're talking about doing social justice stuff. And then you like talk to certain organizations, like maybe like the black church, the black church is like, what do you mean? We, we just call that Wednesday. You know, I like guess what we do, we've been doing that Wednesday for, for a hundred years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. And in, in some ways, a lot of our grassroots leaders, like they don't need a workshop on impact enterprise. Like they've been taking half of the money they've been making from their cupcake business to feed their neighbors. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I guess we can give them some language for that. Oh, that's called impact enterprise, but like, it's not really that necessary. So yeah. Now I wonder, uh, I guess I'm going to ask you to put your academic hat on because I know you're working on your doctor of philosophy at the urban affairs department at Cleveland state. So from kind of like an academic perspective, if this was, if this was something that was being asked of you about kind of describing this, a future of civic engagement uh, where you might build bridges uh, across and between right disconnected communities within an urban landscape, what might that look like? What, what are some maybe like, I hate to use best practices, but you know, what, what are some kind of themes that uh, kind of occur uh, or should be pursued for folks that are, that are looking to build bridges? So, I always find the civic engagement conversation so interesting, partly because I, I obviously it's super important, especially in democracy and period. On the other hand, like I just know so many of my neighbors and friends who like, they do not care to be engaged civically and I'm, I don't want to force them to be, you know what I'm saying? Like, a, so I, I always have to kind of like hold those two truths together Nevertheless, there there is a population of folk who, if you weren't to engage them, they would engage. Um, who currently aren't engaged, let's say that. There's a population of folk who don't want to be engaged. There's a population of folk who are already engaged, and generally, that like that last group um, dominates civic engagement. So I would say, like, we need better strategies for. Um, finding that second group of folk who aren't engaged, but would be if, for instance, they were incentivized, compensated, given the keys, as in like given some power, um, not just tokenized as, you know, can you be this person for us? Um, and there's, you know, obviously several different ways that can happen. 
And it's, it's really important to be sensitive to how we do that, especially like whether you're a city um, and you're trying to engage, uh, you know, our Summit Lake neighborhood, for instance, a lot of stuff happening down at the lake and some people are afraid of gentrification. Some people are afraid that the community is going to be taken over and that the city has all, there's been this history the last few years of like development plans coming from the city that the residents have no idea about. And there was really just broken communication. Um, things like that really shouldn't happen. Um, even if you don't have a plan yet, like let it be known <laughs> that we don't really have a plan um, or we do. And we don't want to tell you, like, just say something, you know, whatever the case may be. So yeah. Be and really, yeah. Just be honest, like say something. And then when you say it, be honest. Uh, and then really be inclusive, which is more than just a kind of a tokenism of saying like, here, show up to our table. But is there a way that we can make the table, make the table like genuinely our table, like not just the city's table that we're inviting you to, but this is, this is your community's table. And how can we share the seats at it um, and share the the power broking and the uh, and the decision making and the resources in a way that's um, equitable and affirming and honoring and in solidarity with those who we're trying to empower? I mean, can you think of any good examples of you know when the, when co creation has you know, meaningful co-creation and, 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 you know, co-creation that actually was implemented has been uh, in, in place in an, in an urban landscape. Uh, I mean, not really off the top of my head. There's, there's been some, so I'll use my city again as an example. Like our cities, Akron's a fairly progressive city. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my city. Like you could still point out a plethora of things that are not, perfect but like find a city that's perfect and <laughs> and uh move there and good luck um but anyways <laughs> like our our city is is pretty progressive and so we've done even along like i said our summit lake corridor area like there's been uh really strong attempts to be inclusive to uh really hear and listen to the voice of our community like akron has a has been more intentional in general of like empowering cdcs to be the voices of particular neighborhoods uh cleveland and in cleveland which is just half an hour from akron like there's a cdc on every block like every neighborhood has a cdc uh which is really in one sense it's beautiful but there's also a lot of you know things uh with the cdc um, context and ecosystem there that i won't get into uh but like akron is just kind of on the early phase of that and we have some cdcs that have been re really doing good work and so i think the city's smart uh, and has been leveraging that CDC model to better implement some of this co-creation. Uh, I think that's true. And, and again, even with that, I, I could be critical and say these are some things that like really didn't weren't representative repre representative of the neighborhood, didn't include adequately, uh, and and so on. But I think there's some really good examples there. But I. Some of the things are just challenging culturally. Like it's it's like if you want to set a table, but the table the culture of the table is like you have like the board. I'm so sorry. I'm going to get on my soapbox. Like, like I'm on a, a few boards and then every board you have like Murphy's laws or whatever they're called. They're not called Murphy's laws or something different, but sounds something like Robert's laws. Robert's Thank rules. You. <laughs> Robert's <laughs> rules. And you have to like say, I motion to do this. And I second that. And who says, who yays that? Like all these kind of like, 
antiquated white English ways of like, which aren't intentionally racist and oppressive, but like come from a context that's racist and oppressive. Right. So, and then we say, well, why don't you join our board? It's like, why would I want to join a board that that's culture is dictated? Any decision that we made has to be in the language of, of, of white dominant culture. Like, I don't want to join your board. <laughs> I don't want to talk like that. I just want to have real conversations where I don't have to motion. I can just say like, yes, I agree. Cool. You know what I'm saying? So there's just a lot of things from culture to just practices that I think, um, we've made progress on and I'm sure a lot of people are making progress on, especially after 2020, uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, they may not be intentionally racist, but there, there's certainly intentional barriers to, to entry. I would agree. Yeah. agree. Yep. Um, you need to know the rules. <laughs> keep out the, the harder to navigate. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I really, I mean, I appreciate that conversation so much too, in part, I mean, and this is where my wonky hat will be put on. I'm really interested in what off sometimes is referred to as institutional designs for democracy. Like, like, are you, did you set the table and then invite people and think that it would be shared, that the, that the, that it would, that decisions would be shared equally, or did you actually create the table together, decide on the height, size, parameters, and everything together so that the decisions would be made um, at that table with the intention that people already knew that their voices um, were valued and mattered. And I think that um, it's a, and I don't know if that's exactly what you were saying, but it really kind of resonated with me in a way that is also really hard to do in practice. Right. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes um, it, the disparity yeah, is so great that, that it's not possible you know, like the there's been such a long history of not being inclusive that like I don't know if you can make a table that's inclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, there's no there's no engineering good enough to make a table that can write or repair that history. And I don't even like sometimes we got you know we have such an, an imperialistic like American exceptionalist triumphalistic approach to doing the thing. Sometimes like you just have to take an L. Like we we can't do this right now. Like we like, this is too ugly and too bad and too harmful. We just need to lament for uh, like a long time. And, uh, and then maybe when y'all are ready to, to, to set the table, we'll, we'll show up. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So you just alluded to this. This is hard work. The work that you're doing at Akron leadership foundation, the work, of generally engagement broadly, of community development broadly, what keeps you motivated to do the work that you do and to continue to do the work that you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like for going back to the beginning, just just my own story, my own experiences, I just have this deep longing in my bones to work for the liberation of people of neighbors of friends of myself like you know essentially uh in a sense like i you your identity is shaped by the people around you like whoever you're looking at is a mirror of yourself in many ways and if you can find yourself in your neighbor and in your friends and in your peers and in the other um you have tapped into a a deep thread i would say that's baked into the heart of every human 
to fight for the liberation of of your neighbor, of your friend, of the other. And uh, that's, I just have maybe acknowledged that and latched onto that, that thread in myself. And I deeply believe in it and I have given my life to it and I will continue to do so. Um, and that motivates me, um, both the wins and the losses, the, the kind of endemic nature to life of being tragic that some people lose, some people die, some people never catch up. You know, like the, what is it? Like African-Americans are 11 times less wealthy than, than their white counterparts. Like that's not going to be fixed maybe ever. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, yeah. Let's keep it real. Uh, maybe we can fix some like the income disparities, but the wealth disparity is, uh, yeah, it's, it's outrageous. And so like, can we bear both the the beauty of progress and the pain of um, what might be kind of like impenetrable problems in society and in our world? And and so I I hope to be the kind of person who can hold all those things together. And in them, I think, is where uh, creativity and innovation and discipline and perseverance are birthed and i think that's that's what motivates me and 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 obviously beautiful people in my life who've who've mentored and taught me that stuff uh, a strong faith tradition that has also challenged me like this ancient tradition of liberation that's rooted in my faith as well so a lot of things definitely motivate me but uh i think that i think that through i guess what i'm trying to say is that that part of me that like wants to fight for my neighbor, like I think that's in all of us. Um, I just maybe hold on to it a little bit more tightly. <laughs> now, so this is the the part in the episode when we ask what civic engagement and, and engaged populace look like to you. But I actually want to ask you a different question because I think that you have – uh, suggested a, a better definition of these things um, than, than our academic uh, quote-unquote definitions, which is this idea of liberation. So what does a community that is that is dedicated to liberation for, uh, for all those uh, around them, you know, the, all their communities, their neighbors, what have you, what does that look like to you? Mm. Yeah, I... That's a really big question, but I think I think the first thing that comes to mind is I don't know. I wrestle with this. So part of my research as a PhD student is around the idea of uh, what I call, or I don't call it this, but what I'm calling. So what I'm saying is I didn't originate this term, but slightly <laughs> gotcha. I knew I create a little nuance to it. But like the white savior nonprofit industrial complex, mm -hmm. yep. and so. Like, which, which is kind of investigating, like, is there, is there actual harm done by nonprofits that are white serving predominantly like black communities in particular? Um, and can it like be measured or not? You know what I'm saying? So, so I, but at the same time, I'm like, it's, it's, people are still like trying to do good and some good stuff's happening. Right. So what does a, like a liberating community look like? I think you have to hold a vision that is both like um, 
long term and immediate at the same time. Like I think in the long term, a, a liberating community looks like a community being self-sustaining, right? You know, I, I want to kind of highlight this uh, typography or this this these kind of categories of like either doing work with, doing work for, or doing work of. And I think long term, what a liberating liberating community looks like is a community that is able to take care of itself. Right, that there's no sort of like outside resources coming in to like save the day, <laughs> but <laughs> but there's like a hey, like we have what it takes. It's right here in us and with us, and we're not ex- we don't exclude the idea of like this is an American individualism to where like we don't need anyone else. But at the same time, it's like if we need someone else, it's our choice, and we uh, we can do it freely. It's not because we need. Uh, the the pity or the uh, the handouts or the whatever the case may be from from others so uh, and I, I think that goes a layer below like a layer down beneath that is just kind of like these these principles of seeing and knowing and, and loving the other being willing to uh, take risks on individuals and uh, take risks on projects and initiatives that that otherwise maybe you wouldn't. Um, I think it, I think it looks like a number of things, but I'm not, I don't know if I'm answering your question well, cause it's, it's it seems like such a big question. It, it does. I think you answered it perfectly. Okay. Yeah. It's a beautiful question though. So that's why I just, I want to do it justice. So I'm like, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I can write you. I can write you an essay on it though, if you want. Be... <laughs> oh yeah. You should. <laughs> you didn't know that you were going to be invited to do that. <laughs> yeah. You can do a blog post. Okay. A great question. <laughs> but I think that's really important. Though. Like we, we should all do work with that vision in mind. Whatever it is for you, like, like whatever that vision of a a, a liberating, healing, like abolitionist view of your community, like. Like, do your work with that in mind, and it'll change the way you do the work. Um, and even if you can't articulate it that well, like, I didn't articulate it that well, in my opinion. But, like, I know what it is in my bones, and that drives my work every day. That's amazing, and I appreciate it, especially since you didn't know that question was coming. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't prepare for it in any way. Is there anything else you want to add? Any words of wisdom that you want? our listeners to to leave this episode with i think just to like have grace like 20 if 2020 taught us anything i mean it taught us a lot let's just say say that 2020 taught us a lot but one of my like i named my daughter i only have one daughter i have another one on the way but her name is grace and it's because that like that's such a powerful virtue like to be able to give grace to people who are different than you, um, to be able to work graciously toward common and shared goals, um, to be able to differ graciously, right? That's one thing that we just did not do well at all. Um, we don't do it well really ever, but like 2020 showed us like, hey, we do not know how to differ graciously, um, period. So I think I would just leave you with that wisdom of like um, find some space to find grace for yourself in the work that you do that you don't have to achieve you don't have to overcome 
poverty. You don't have to find the perfect way to be inclusive in your civic engagement. Like give yourself grace, let yourself work freely out of that space and then carry that grace that has to start with yourself into your interpersonal relationships and into the community work that you do into the government work that you do into the for-profit or nonprofit work that you do. And I bet it'll change um, some things. That is such a touching ending. Thank you so much for coming on with us, Bryson. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really a joy. Thanks for what y'all do. American politics has reached a moment of existential uncertainty with problems bigger than any one administration. My name is James Walner, and I host the podcast Politics in Question with Lee Drutman and Julia Azari. On our show, we take a step back and discuss how our political institutions are failing us, ideas for fixing them, and what American politics could look like if citizens questioned everything. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher, and more information at our website, Politics in Question. Hey everyone, my name is Jenna Spinelli and I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll like our show too. Every episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big picture issues like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and other times it's more on the ground topics like ranked choice voting and how local news deserts are democracy deserts too. Some of our previous guests include Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Sullivan, and even Wynton Marsalis. So I hope you'll check out Democracy Works. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and with me as always is my co-host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by our Patreon patrons. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by donuts and coffee, then head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.